Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I'm going to ask you to open a little wider, Mr. Wagner, and turn toward me. Oh. Thanks. Okay, you might feel a little pinch. Oh. Nurse, what is he doing with his hands? Uh, he's signaling frantically for you to stop, Dr. Wolf. Oh. Mr. Wagner, do you know what this procedure is? It's an apicoectomy. Is that how you say it, nurse? I think it's episoectomy. The point is, they only showed it to us once at my dental school in Belize. The next day, Professor Castillo was mauled by a jaguar, so we never got back to it. I miss the Universidad Nacional, nurse. I know you do, Dr. Wolf. Anyway, I I need all the concentration I can muster here, all right? I can't have you yelling and thrashing around, okay? What's he saying? Sounds like anesthesia. Do we have that? I'm not familiar with it, Dr. Wolf. Mr. Wagner, let me put it this way. It's 2014. I pay quite a pretty penny to rent this fully equipped office by the week, and I'm sure if this amnesia stuff was of any use to us, it would be here on one of these trays, but I don't see it. So let's just go right ahead and put our man pants on, okay? And back into the mouth we go. Hey, nurse, have you seen the Sons of Anarchy show on TV? No, Dr. Wolf. I go to night church. I'm not sure what that is. I binge-watched this series. Hold still, Mr. Wegner. Last night for 12 episodes. I went to bed at 5 and woke up at 7. <laughs> what a little baby. All right, if you won't calm down, I'm going to give you some nitrous oxide. What? You should have told me that. Let's put the mask on, Mr. Wegner. It's top gun time. First one for me. And one for Nurse Talarski. Come on, it's five o'clock somewhere. And you get the rest. Make sure his chair goes up and down, nurse. You're Maverick, Mr. Wegman. I'm Goose. And Nurse is Iceman. And on the show today, the history of amnesia. Anesthesia. Whatever. And its famous martyr. And now he insists on nitrous oxide for his flu shot. Colin McEnroe. Uh, and for my prostate check, actually. Yeah, just across the board, really. Why, why live through anything if you don't have to? Uh, that's my philosophy. So we are going to be talking today about the history of anesthesia and the way in which its epicenter is either here in Hartford or Boston or halfway between if you want to split the difference. Um, this is something that if you live in Hartford for a long time, you might know about. You walk through the park, Bushnell Park, you see this statue, a guy named Horace Wells. Uh, You wonder a little bit. Maybe you pick up a little bit of the story. Well, now you have a chance to hear the whole story, or at least as much of the story as we can possibly dig up uh, for you. And then you can have the story come alive right before your eyes. All you have to do is go to the Hartford Stage Company where the Ether Dome uh, is currently in production. It's by Liz Egloff. Elizabeth Egloff is sitting here in the studio with us right now, an award-winning playwright. Um, actually, I, I just realized something, which I've never really thought about before, but people ask why our Friday show is called The Nose. And I would say, and I never really know how to answer that question, but I would give Elizabeth Egloff 
18% of the credit or the influence on that because I was very influenced by her adaptation of Gogol's The Nose. Uh, and so there you go. Uh, anyway, uh, she's written many other plays as well. We can talk about those if we have time. She's an adjunct professor of playwriting at Vassar and Barnard College. Uh, David Crombie is here at the studio with us. He's a retired doctor, uh, very interested in the, our local medical history. And in just a second, oh, he, we've already got him there, uh, we'll be talking to uh, Gary Flores. He's the chief of anesthesiology and chief of staff at Houston Methodist Sugarland Hospital, president of the Greater Houston Anesthesiology Group. Uh, he, I think, has been uh, helping uh, Elizabeth Egoff a little bit with uh, the history of anesthesia. Um, so um, let's begin. So, Elizabeth, maybe just set the can – I, can I call you Liz? Yeah. All right. We, we went to high school together, so I can't call you Elizabeth. Um, uh, set the stage a little bit. Uh, this, this is the story of a Hartford dentist in the first half uh, of the 19th century. Uh, so who is Horace Wells? So Horace Wells, most of us didn't even know who he was, those of us who grew up around Hartford. Uh, but he was a dentist who was, grew up in Vermont, came down to Hartford in, around 1835, uh, was uh, under under the orders from his stepfather who told him to get a job or else. So Horace uh, gave up writing poetry and became a dentist. And uh, he was he was known as a very good dentist, and he was apparently the most popular dentist in Hartford because he was so fast, and he could take out a molar in less than forty seconds. Uh, but any any very good dentist could take out a tooth in less than forty two seconds. But <laughs> Horace was known for being particularly fast. So it's like the Olympics. And so the the value in being fast, obviously, was that uh, every second was an extra second of pain because nobody knew what to do about that. Yeah. And the and the bad part, of course, is that you're tearing through in surgery and uh, you can't be very precise. Um, so uh, and I don't want to give away the entire plot of the play. I don't think that's a good idea. But I mean, some of this is relatively well known. And I, I think we can at least say that his discovery, like a lot of discoveries, is kind of accidental. Right. He goes to what, a, what is effectively right. kind of a night of almost circus like performances. And, and this guy is demonstrating nitrous oxide. Well, and we we don't know exactly how entertaining the night was because uh, we only have uh, conflicting records. And the play makes it a little more entertaining, possibly, than it was. But uh, they went. He went to what was supposed to be a lecture on uh, nitrous oxide and the brain, and it became uh, a, a party, a giant party. <laughs> and and Horace took the gas, and uh, and he was in reality Horace was fine. But he watched another man named Sam Cooley fall over a bench and gash his leg badly. And Sam uh, apparently didn't feel a thing. And Horace was inspired to go home and uh, have his own tooth taken out uh, later that night with the gas to see if it worked the way he thought it would. And uh, and the thing was that the, the gas at that point wasn't giving total coverage, but it was giving mostly coverage. So the characters in the play often say, well, the, the patients were in no pain or almost no pain. 
<laughs> so. Which is bad advertising. Almost no pain almost. is not. You know, we've got the dentist who caters to cowards uh, underwriting these shows. We don't, uh, we don't say almost no pain. So, um, by the way, as we go along here, if you have your own comments, you grew up with the Horace Wells mythology or, or you have just questions, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us at WNPR Colin, our tweet master, Greg Hill, has recovered from the terrible dental procedure you heard him getting in the introduction. He's ready to tweet right back at you, WNPR Colin is the handle there. So, um, Liz Egloff, I, I don't really want to cover everything because I, I don't want to blow up the plot of your play. But, I mean, w- one of the things that happens, one of the things we do see on the, in this play, and I, I think this is um, something we, we want to spend a little bit of time on here today, is um, you would think that the minute it turned out that even maybe it was possible to perform surgery with without pain, without somebody screaming and thrashing uh, in a chair, without somebody having to be tied down or held in this rather uncomfortable looking frame. You know, the minute it turned out, wow, there's like an easier way to do this, which reduces suffering, people would be flocking to at least see if there's some possibility that's true. But the climate, the environment right. you depict, particularly as Wells goes up to Boston, and yeah, it doesn't have really things go all that perfectly when he wants to demonstrate it, but the climate is almost kind of deaf to, oddly deaf to that whole question. Right. And it it had been in a book written by Humphrey Davies, who had done the most experimentation on it. And Humphrey Davies himself didn't uh, go any further than to suggest that nitrous oxide might have, in larger doses, might have a substantial uh, effect on traumatic pain. And uh, nobody caught it. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's because culturally and religiously, it was too challenging a notion that you could uh, possibly not accept being in agony, that a- agony wasn't given to you by God as a way of proving your faith, but that agony was a physiological response to being knifed. And uh, so so there were many uh, surgeons who did not take it up readily because for them it challenged their view of the world. You know, I, I want to stay with that for just a second, and I will add uh, Gary Flores uh, to this conversation, Dr. Gary Flores, Chief of Anesthesiology and Chief of Staff at Houston Methodist Sugarland Hospital, President of the Greater Houston Anesthesiology Group, and David Crombie. I'll, I'll try to draw you into this conversation, too. But Gary Flores, as I look at things unfolding on stage there in Liz's play, and I, uh, and then I kind of extrapolate uh, or, or infer maybe from there, the other thing I'm thinking is, you know, thinking almost more in the terms of the structure of scientific um, uh, revolutions that that you know it's it, there, maybe there's this whole idea of suffering and then that's part of humankind and there's some uh, implicit Christian um, uh, message, message about this but also I feel like scientists a lot of times don't get things at first I mean they've seen everything the same way for X thousand years so to see it a different way even if that different way seemed from from the perspective of 2014 to be really obvious seeing things that different way there may just be kind of uh, uh, what a kind of or just a residual latent blindness to it. Yeah, I think there's probably some validity to that. Um, you know, the, to me, the the thing that's most striking about the play is that people get a chance to see what uh, surgery was like prior to anesthesia. We take it for granted now that it almost becomes routine. The expectations are very high that everything's going to go smoothly, and um, you know, so. Um, 
it's a different mindset now uh, than it was then, and this this really changed the way uh, medicine, particularly the surgical uh, subspecialty, our specialty, could be practiced, uh, and and made it so much easier for patients. And, and back in that day, the best surgeons were not necessarily the ones with the best technique; they were the fastest because that that had the least amount of pain. Um, you know, I, I want to bring uh, David Crombie into this conversation, too. Uh, Dr. David uh, Crombie, retired doctor, um, very immersed in, in local medical history. How, how, how much does Horace Wells, what kind of figure does he cut on the uh, historical land life, uh, landscape uh, of Hartford medicine? Is this something people talk about a lot? Well, um, Horace, of course, uh, his profile is part of the logo of the Hartford Medical Society, which was formed in 1847. So he was a heroic figure to the medical and dental communities back then. And um, the view of most folks that have an interest in the history is that he was a keenly observant fellow. He was a pretty scholarly guy for a dentist of his time. And uh, he observed a potential use for nitrous oxide, as Liz pointed out, uh, nitrous oxide had been around for a while, but nobody made the connection between its use and the surgical arena until well, he and, said. And Humphrey Davy, whom she mentioned, those guys were using it very recreationally, right, Liz? I mean, right. he was like, he had all the British poets yeah, and, and, and people like that. that. Then that was really something you did. It was research, Colin. It was <laughs> research. <laughs> no, I mean, this was like they would have parties, right? And they would uh, they would huff this stuff, and, and nobody was really thinking uh, about the medical application. Uh, as we go along here, 860-275-7266. You know, um, Liz, why did you gravitate towards this subject matter? Why, of all the things in the world that you could write a play about? You have to blame Michael Wilson, the former artistic director of Hartford Stage. Michael uh, had come across the statue of Horace Wells one day in the park and had asked a friend who was that. And, uh, and around that time, he got some money from the state of Connecticut to commission, I think, three plays having to do with a uh, figure in Connecticut history. And so Michael picked Horace Wells because it, who knew if it was uh, an, true or false or an urban myth that Horace Wells had invented the idea of anesthesia and had, in fact, been uh, ripped off of the credit by a former student. And so when Michael said uh, to me, do you want to do this play? I said, yeah, because it was a, it was a natural fit since uh, a lot of my family are doctors and many from Boston – but also because I grew grew up in the Hartford area, and uh, so uh, we, so we initially thought this was going to be you know a short little play solving the mystery of whether Horace had uh, had the credit stolen from him, and immediately as I started doing research, it became clear that there was a third man in Boston who was a uh, scientist and surgeon at Massachusetts General named Dr. Charles Jackson, and that Charles Jackson had 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 been the one who actually gave the vial of sulfuric ether to the former student whose name was William Morton. So, so William Morton, what he got from his teacher, Horace Wells, was the idea of anesthesia, and what he got from Charles Jackson was the actual substance to give. 
So, um, and so there really are these three different people, and and William Morton in the play is depicted as kind of a little bit more of a blank slate onto which some of these things get projected. He's a, not not necessarily a per, person of high moral or ethical character, uh, nor does he come across as any medical or scientific genius. He's just kind of a guy who who he's more of an entrepreneur maybe than than anything else. And then Jackson is this fascinating guy, this kind of multi-hued and multidisciplinary scholar uh, who who looks at all kinds of scientific questions. But Liz also is kind of a serial, I invented that guy, right? I mean, it's not just the telegraph, which is the thing that you bring up in the play. I think there are like four different things that Jackson claimed that he didn't get enough credit for inventing. Yes, and and you can kind of – well, you can understand the points of view of each of these characters, but – Charles Jackson loved to talk, and he was one of these men who you ask him a question, be like winding him up, and he would go on and on and on. And apparently he was on a boat crossing the Atlantic with Samuel Morse, and the table of people that he was eating dinner with included Samuel Morse, and they would ask him questions. And every night he loved going on and on about whatever question they asked. And he at some point started talking about electromagnetism, It seems that he probably told Samuel Morse the principles of uh, possibly transferring signals. Uh, But uh, when he got back to Boston, Charles Jackson went back to his first love, which was geology. And Samuel Morse went and uh, designed the telegraph. Um, and, you know, one of the things – well, first of all, let's just po- po- kind of pause over this whole sort of who gets credit thing. And so, um, Dr. Gary Flores, I'm going to go to you first of all. So we, we see in, in Liz's play, we know a little bit from the story that uh, that in many ways Horace Wells gets the ball rolling and then kind of a little bit drops out of the story. And then it's Morton and then Morton and Jackson kind of arguing about it and having really kind of a long-running feud about this. And so I don't know how important it is who gets credit – who gets the statue? Who gets the plaque? Um, but f- the way that you parse it, I mean, how does it how does it play out? Who really should be credited with being the discoverer of anesthesia? Well, Morton was the one who actually uh, administered the first anesthetic uh, on October 16th, uh, and that date is commemorated uh, every year. The American Society of Anesthesiologists meets for their yearly meeting during the week of October 16th, just to kind of commemorate that day. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, themes in this uh, play. It's very rich, and one of them has to do with sort of fame and ambition and the cost of that. And, uh, I, you know, I think it's natural that you have uh, people who want to get credit for something as significant as this. Uh, but really, Morton was the, he's, he's kind of a P.T. Barnum Type character. I mean, he he was the one that actually promoted it and was able to uh, uh, get it implemented. And so, I guess I really think he probably deserves the credit. Although I'm glad to see Horace being brought into the story. Um, in, in the play, Horace Wells. Uh, if Morton is the P.T. Barnum, Horace Wells is kind of I don't know. He's the Peter Pan slash Zonker Harris of the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's flitting around. He's not really. Uh, I mean, he in the play, he quits and becomes an art dealer. I think in real life he went around selling canaries for a while. He yeah. goes to Paris. He does a lot, a lot of things that don't have anything to do with practicing, practicing dentistry or practicing medicine. But, uh, Dr. David Crumby, I want you to have an opportunity to, to stand up and uh, or sit there quietly and thump the table uh, on behalf of Horace Wells, if that's what's in your heart. 
Well, it is somewhat in my heart, and my colleagues around Hartford have been in defense of Horace Wells as the innovator of general anesthesia for my entire career. The difficulty, I think, is that, um, and this is true in many inventions of over history, somebody comes up with the idea, but in the practical application of it, they fall a little short. And then someone else with a greater detail, looking after it with greater detail, delivers it into the world of practical application in a way that catches on. And I think Horace Wells did have the right idea and did really innovate uh, general anesthesia, and his first demonstration of it uh, was really not a full failure, but was a partial failure. He was very disappointed, and he couldn't bring himself to deliver any further on that particular mission. And when he saw others, like Morton and Jackson, saw them able to gain the um, acclaim as bringing it to the Mass General, and within a couple of months it was around the world, general anesthesia. When Horace saw that, he was doubly discouraged and doubly depressed. But I think he still gets the credit. I think he should get the credit for seeing the possibility of general anesthesia and using a gas to accomplish it. Well, Liz, it's almost as though this story lays itself out as kind of a Trinitarian argument about what scientific discovery really is. So you've got Horace Wells, who's dreamy, who is, uh, I think he was a thwarted, literally a thwarted poet, right? He wanted to be a poet. And he was an idealist, and he wasn't necessarily cut out to even be in the medical profession by, by personality traits. Uh, he couldn't stand to see people suffer, and uh, the and the the terrible reaction at Massachusetts General uh, was accompanied by a lot of laughter and name calling, and it must have just been the most humiliating night of his life. And he came back to Hartford and was sick for several months with no one knows quite what, but uh, as after that he basically was, as Dr. says, uh, he basically left the dentist profession. Yeah. Um, the But just to sort of to, to conclude this whole kind of Trinitarian argument, so you've got him. You, maybe you need that guy who's got that dreamy spark, maybe not the most practical guy in the world, but because, but that's who that's what a dreamer is. That's, that's what an imaginer is. Then you've got um, Charles Jackson, kind of a fascinating figure, and sort of maybe the tail end of the polymath. You know, I mean, here's there's this kind of Boston Brahmin quality uh, to him and the people that he's hanging around with. But, you know, he really almost harks back to John Stuart Mill and Erasmus and these kinds of people who weren't just one thing. They were a lot of different things. That was the idea of being a knowledgeable person. Not only did you not specialize in anesthesiology or dermatology or, 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 or you know, or gastroenterology, you didn't even specialize in being a doctor. That wasn't uh, a big enough thing <laughs> right. all by itself, right? Right. And, and the doctors that were at the general right then, who, by the way, insisted for the last 150 years that William Morton was the sole man to get credit for it, uh, which meant turning their backs on their colleague, Dr. Charles Jackson. Uh, but, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, so um, my, I, the brutal truth is that, that Horace Wells didn't have enough knowledge to know how much danger he was in <laughs> and to, or to know how much danger he was putting the patient in, and he did it. And it's 
fairly clear that he did it for money and fame. But but at the time, fame was not what it is today. Fame at the time could be considered, you know, being like Byron or somebody having women throwing themselves at you. But fame was more deeply known as being in the history books. And when Horace Wells' wife fought for his credit, uh, she was fighting t- not for the money, but she was fighting to have Horace's name in the book, uh, giving him credit. Uh, but, you know, so anyway, it does strike me that maybe you need that. Were you going to say something, Dr. Fromm? Yeah. I, I was just going to say the the contrast between a starry-eyed idealist with altruistic motives, which is the way Horace comes across to us quite often, contrasted with an individual who was ambitious, and then after the ether demonstration of October 1846, uh, Morton... Tried to disguise the identity of ether and called it lithion and dyed it with a special coloring and so on so that it wouldn't be easily discovered and tried to gain a patent for its use and he was thwarted in that but I think uh, Horace Wells was became doubly discouraged when he saw that some of the idealistic hopes that he had were being now sort of overpowered by the ambitious and somewhat um, greedy uh, things that Morton was doing. Um, One more question for Gary Flores, and then we're going to grab a break. You know, the other thing that that strikes me about this story is the climate of risk that accompanied scientific discovery at the time. And not that risk has gone away. There are people right now, there are doctors right now in in Africa uh, trying to treat Ebola and putting themselves at an incredible risk with a disease that isn't really completely understood. Um, But, you know, we know from the history of medical discovery stories of, uh, of innovators injecting themselves with their own vaccine or injecting one of their loved ones w- with a new drug uh, that, you know, that that was sort of part of it. You you feel as though there in the 19th century that there's no such thing as a risk-free protocol. If you're going to try this thing, you're going to put all kinds, kinds of things. You're not going to test it on rabbits for 12 years. You're going to put a lot of human fates into play. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, you know, whenever you uh, try something new, a lot of times you're, you're you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants. I mean, back then, there was no way to meter exactly how much of the gas, for example, that you were delivering to the patient. You know, we have very precise uh, machinery that does that now, but... You don't have, like, a big uh, balloon back, like in Liz's play? Yeah, like in Liz's play, you know, <laughs> they, they would just basically soak a pad or a sponge and then uh, put it in the Morton inhaler, and the patient would breathe, but you know, you don't know how much uh, was actually being delivered. And so there's always that risk that you could uh, potentially overdose a patient or underdose them, in which case they would uh, wake up in the middle and you would look look really bad. So, uh, uh, you know, that, and, and you have to do this with uh, human subjects at some point to see that it works. And so there is always that risk involved in order to, um, gain promise in, in in something new. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking about the uh, discovery of anesthesia, uh, the role that one Hartford dentist played in it all, the play that's uh, now on Hartford stage that celebrates and perhaps also bemoans uh, some of that story. Uh, we'll tell you more when we get back. Snuff 
Steve Martin uh, as uh, the dentist who didn't get the message from Horace Wells. All right, so that's from Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, so we're talking, uh, uh, well, no, we're not talking about a Little Shop of Horrors. We're talking about medicine. We're talking about medical discovery and the structure of medical uh, revolutions. Elizabeth Egloff is with us. Her new play is The Ether Dome, currently in production at Hartford Stage. It's running through October 5th. Get your tickets now. David Crombie is here. He's a retired doctor who's very interested in our local medical history here in Connecticut. Uh, Gary Flores, who, by the way, wins an award for the biggest sacrifice. Uh, well, I don't know if it's the biggest sacrifice ever made by any guest on the show. But you're probably, and it's there's sort of a karmic uh, tr- something, a, a karmic truth about all this. You're probably in more pain right now than any guest that we've ever had on our show. We've never had someone appear on our show with a recently broken ankle. But um, I hope you're doing okay there. Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm attempting to self-diagnose at this point. But uh, it's either a, a really bad brain uh, dislocation or maybe a fracture. I don't know. But uh, I'm not taking any pain medication, so I can be lucid through this conversation. <laughs> all right. Well, just fax us some pictures and David Crombie will diagnose it for you. Uh, all right. So it's, I'm sure that's sound medical practice. As we go along here, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You know, um, before you do pass out from the pain, uh, Gary Flores, um, one of the things that does strike me is this story is not as well known as as some other medical discovery stories. And there might be a lot of different reasons for that. But I was, you know, I was referring to Pasteur and Salk. I mean, everybody knows Pasteur and Salk. Everybody knows those names. Everybody knows who made those discoveries. Uh, I, I could come up with other examples of that if I had a more rich and fertile mind. But those, the, that's what I've got right now. And, and I'm wondering if it's because anesthesiology is a different kind of thing. It's really sort of the absence of something as opposed to the presence of something. It's the, it's the absence of pain. And I wonder if we do take that a little bit for granted and, and wonder less about how we get to this point where we have it. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, uh, a good observation, because, you know, anesthesia to this day remains probably the most mysterious of the medical specialties where it's kind of a black box. You know, uh, we see patients uh, for five or 10 minutes prior to surgery and take them in and then you know, they don't, then they don't see us again. Uh, we, we will check on them in the recovery room to see how they're doing. But it's a very brief, interactive time. And uh, um, you're right, it is, you are rendering them unconscious. And, uh, and for a lot of them, that's a very scary thing. Uh, but for some of them, there's just an expectation that, uh, you know, I'm just going in and have this procedure done, no big deal. But uh, every... Uh, uh, anesthetic can be a little different, and every patient brings a different challenge. So um, we're we're kind of on the sidelines. I I view us as the offensive linemen on the football team. You, you need us there to keep the ball moving forward. But the only time anybody notices that is if there's a a penalty <laughs> right. or a sack. Um, yeah. All right. So, um, and, and Liz Egloff, once again as a playwright, asking you a little bit about your gravitation towards this material. I, I think. 
you know, as I was watching the play, it just so happens that right now I'm having a little bit of dentistry done. Uh, and in fact, it involves a little bit of oral surgery and a little bit of dentistry. So that's really fun. Um, and it's, for the most part, been lidocaine and stuff like that rather than nitrous oxide, although there is this great thing they do now where they do this little sort of nitrous and oxygen mix, which they can kind of fiddle with. And when they want you to wake up a little bit, they just add more oxygen and take the nitrous away. And it's like, I, I wish I was Humphrey oh. Davies' friend. It's really great. I've never it's, had that. It's terrific. Oh. Yeah, I think American Airlines offers it now, too. So um, <laughs> the next time you fly, uh, just ask for it. But um, but I, I, it, it is sort of something where, once again, I, I wonder about our gratitude. You know? I mean, we're, we really ought to be intensely grateful to these people in your play. But I don't think we think about this very much. No, no, we don't. I mean, and often, you know, the conversation before you have surgery is, oh, good, what drugs are you going to get? So it's not just the absence of pain, but it's an actual, for some people, looking forward to the experience of sort of getting high-ish before you pass out. Uh, so, So... the world is really upside down from then, but but it's not just because of anesthesia. Of course, it's because of the many forces of psychology and uh, economics and uh, the culture that that have changed since then. But but I will say that be, having the ability to choose whether to be in pain or not, or to choose whether to put your patient in through that pain, it, uh, severed a very important. Uh, connection between uh, enlightenment man and God, which I don't, which has uh, really enabled us to go forward in so many ways. I mean, that's the big, that's the big surprise in your play, though, to me. That's the big reveal, is that it, it is seen that way by some people. I mean, it, it, this is so difficult to wrap one's mind around because it's just not 2014 at all. But there are people in your play who are saying, and I assume this is based uh, to some, some, some degree on historical record, that there's something wrong with this, that, that, that allowing people to make a choice like that puts them in an untenable or... or a, a soiling kind of a moral, yes. moral position. I, I, spell as, that out. You're not as good a person if you if you need anesthesia. But we still do it today to women who are pregnant and are going to give birth. And there's enormous pressure that women exert on other women to do it without with without uh, painkiller of any sort. And there's still the same moral judgment uh, on women who choose to have an epidural or whatever. Uh, so so that culture of valuing pain is still very much in existence in terms of maternity. Uh, Gary Flores, does anybody opt out of anything they can have these days? I mean, just assume everybody's like me. My position is anything that you can do to make my my life easier and more bearable and this experience more forgettable, uh, please do it. Uh, is there any strain in modern life that says, well, no, maybe maybe I should be awake for this? Well, uh, in OB anesthesia, of course, I, I think the majority of first-time moms who come in have the intent of coming and doing it naturally. As Elizabeth said, there's kind of that challenge and, uh, uh, you know, they go through labor coaching classes and all that. But I would say in, at the end of the day, a very high percentage, maybe 80 to 90 percent, will end up opting for the epidural and are usually happy that they did. Um, 
Uh, I'm also I, I want to just uh, go to the end of this story a little bit. And uh, I, I'm going to do a little bit of a giveaway. But once again, this is sort of part of history. So um, as has been suggested here, Horace Wells really did come to a bad end. Uh, bad things happen. Uh, he uh, in, in, he becomes addicted uh, not to nitrous oxide, but to another product uh, related to, uh, to to numbing people and he and clouding their brains. Uh, he winds up doing something uh, really horrible. Maybe I won't reveal bad thing, but really horrible. To, to, to other people just because he's in some kind of manic state or something from this uh, from this drug, and then he winds up uh, taking his own life. Um, and so, you know, um, David Crombie, do you think that makes him, I mean, I, as I walk around, if you walk around Hartford, you can see a plaque where his old practices, you can see a statue in the park. He's got a pew dedicated to him uh, at uh, in the Trinity Chapel. There's like, there's Horsewell stuff all over Hartford. Uh, and then uh, there he is also in Cedar Hill Cemetery. Um, and does it make it, does the fact that he came to this ruinous end make it harder to celebrate him? I think it does to some degree. I think um, it, you just see the individual in the immediate aftermath of the success of Morton take a psychological nosedive, and he just was never able to come out of it. All of us in medicine and dentistry, that especially the local Hartford types, we see the original discovery and the original innovations that he opened us to as still being just as valuable even though the man was destroyed in the end. So um, your question is, does it take away from that? Yes, I think he deserved more glory. He knew he deserved more glory, and in the end he had a terrible demise. So, But his discovery was still very valuable to us. And the other point, Colin, is that you mentioned earlier about the number of discoveries like Salk and Pasteur and so on. But when you read history books, and maybe as a surgeon, there's a bias uh, that some of those history books stress the surgical elements, but the most important contribution to the history of medicine, it is said, was the discovery of general anesthesia. And why would that be? Well, because in all of civilization's experiences preceding the 1846 event, there was suffering, there was screaming, there was inadequate control of pain. And, of course, as you know, we were at war around the world, and casualties were out there on the battlefield being operated upon under a little bit of tincture of opium and a little bit of alcohol. I mean, it was horrific. And so the the page got turned, and from that point forward, it was possible to eliminate that awful pain. Um, Liz, I think I even, we have to take a break right here, but I, I think I even read that Morton, who, as I say, among the protagonists, the central characters in this play, comes across as the most... Well, he had has been a grifter, really, in his past, anyway, and and now right. he's um he's an operator, uh, right. not the surgical kind of operator, an operator kind of operator. Even so, I think I read somewhere that during the Civil War, he he administered uh, anesthesia to, to like hundreds, maybe thousands uh, of wounded soldiers. Well, that was what uh, Willie Morton told other doctors in the <laughs> Washington D.C. area, yeah. uh, but the fact was that none of those doctors who were in D.C. could remember ever having seen him uh, working with the 
with the soldiers. This was on the White, White House lawn. There were thousands of wounded soldiers. No one could ever remember having seen William Morton. Ah, just another oh, another instance. Another one. We yes. did do a whole show about sociopaths a while back. I'm not saying that's Dr. <laughs> Morton. But anyway, let's take a little break. We'll take that break. We'll come back with our final segment after this. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Colleen Mason. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Tolarski played the nurse and is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Steve Martin. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff chloroforming a waiter, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the nose accompanies itself with a red plastic cup. And now... Back to Colin. I've got to explain that reference, but it would take forever. Instead, let me mention a couple of things coming up here. One of them is on September 30th. That's a Tuesday night. You know you'd like to be out partying hard on Tuesday nights. Just don't break your ankle while you're doing it. So come to the Infinity Hall, uh, the new Infinity Hall, the Music Hall in Hartford, uh, where we will be having our fifth anniversary party. You are invited. You, If you, if you can hear my voice, you are invited. Uh, we will not offer uh, chloroform or ether or anything like that, but I believe you get a, a drink to, to get you started and some snacks. Uh, but the main thing is we'd love to see you. We'd love to gather with all the, the fans of the show. They've been so great. So that you can find out more about that, wnpr.org uh, slash events. I believe I said that correctly, wnpr.org uh, slash events. It's going to cost you five whole dollars, one for each year of our existence. And then let's say that you either recover fast from that night or you didn't go at all. The following night at Watkinson School, we have a forum that you're also invited to. It's part of the Freshly Squeezed series that I curate there. It's a conversation about teaching, not about education policy, which I feel has become a a kind of uh, tiresome debate, but about what it really means to teach and learn. It almost does kind of go back uh, to Charles T. Jackson and some of these uh, these Brahmin uh, polymaths that you, you see in the ether dome. What does it really mean to make the faces staring back at you from the rows of the classroom your only priority? We're going to have four really amazing, really interesting guests. I won't uh, use up uh, time telling you who they are, but so to find out about that, it's Watkinson.org. That's where we'll, we'll be. It's I think it starts at 7. Watkinson.org. It's part of the Freshly Squeezed series that you can find out more about. We'd love to see you there, too. You're invited to that. So anyway, um, I think that's all the business I have, all the housekeeping I have. So let's go back to this story. So uh, Etherdome is playing through October 5th at Harvard Stage Company. It's the story of Horace Wells and these other doctors, Jackson and Morton, who became kind of part of this huge debate about anesthesia, about whether to use it, how to use it, and then who invented it. Um, All of that's in there. Um, So Liz Egloff, playwright, and by the way, I'm very proud that you have turned out to be such a good player. I was in plays with Liz Egloff. I, she exhibited talent. I did not. Uh, but I, I, I have this that I can claim now anyway. But um, the um, is this – are we also seeing – and when we see some of these guys, you see Horace Wells who is a dentist except that one day he thinks, you know, I'm going to do something else. Uh, and – uh, and then you see uh, Charles Jackson, who's nominally a doctor, but he's really kind of nervous about certainly certain kinds of practice uh, of medicine. He's not well, 100 percent a doctor uh, the way Dr. David Crombie uh, has been a doctor, the way uh, Dr. Gary Flores is. Um, these guys 
are doing a lot of different things. There are, you know, the, the Brahmins there and the, and the and up there at Harvard uh, are, are interested in a lot of different things. Are we seeing a turning point for medicine where it's going to become start to become the business that it is and the kind of profession that it eventually became? Well, that that's a good question. Uh, but I don't know. I think probably, Dr. Crombie, you're probably more suited to answer that one. Well, I think that um, we always had the, – the, there was always an entrepreneurial element in the practice of medicine. And as a matter of fact, before the establishment of the Yale Medical School in 1810 and before there were organized training programs and so on that kind of defined who was a real doctor and who wasn't, there were many opportunists who were using medicine as a means to, quote, make a living. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, the William Morton um, profile suggests that there was a little bit of that in his makeup, and that's what he was trying to do, establish a, um, a reputation and some wealth on the basis of this activity. And since that time, I don't think it's gone either up or down. I think that we have the entrepreneurs of today, and we have the dedicated altruistic doctors who don't pay much mind to the, to the acquisition of wealth. I mean, uh, Gary Flores, uh, Dr. Morton in Liz's play anyway, does kind of jump out at, uh, at us as kind of a break with tradition, right? He is, he's really about, he's about the Benjamins. He, he is sort of saying, well, wait a second. I, I, he has some moments where he even shows up and says, well, yeah, I could give you the anesthesia for this amputation you're about to do, but I kind of want to get paid uh, for this. Uh, how's that work out? And there's this horror on the look of all these patrician doctors. Like, why, why are you talking to us about money? Yeah, that, I mean, I think there's a little bit of the, uh, our baser nature uh, that comes out with William because he he knows what he's got. I mean, he he, he really sees the potential for this, um, but then he also sees the chance for not only fame but for wealth. And, you know, his history is one of sort of a, a bit of a con man, and so uh, that just, to me, plays along uh, with his nature that he's going to see if he can make a buck out of this. Um, and, you know, the other thing that anesthesia did, I mean, uh, Dr. Crombie was talking about it as uh, as the, the biggest discovery of them all. The other thing that it did was it not only gave you choice about pain, uh, Dr. Gary Flores, whether whether you wanted to experience pain or not, that moral choice that, uh, that Liz talks about, uh, but also... Uh, gave you choice about surgery, right? I mean, I, I assume there was no such thing as elective surgery prior to anesthesia, because why would you voluntarily subject yourself to something that horrible? Yeah, you're exactly right. There's a part in the play where they have to do an amputation. And, you know, ideally, you would have had someone come in at a much earlier stage and have a much more, much more of a minor procedure done. But People just waited until they absolutely couldn't anymore, until it was either life or death, or they couldn't stand the pain anymore from an infection, gangrene, things like that. And so you're right. I mean, they, they, uh, there was a, a real unwillingness to come in unless you absolutely had to. You know, uh, Liz Egloff, um, there is the, the seeds for Ether Dome 2 uh, are, are sitting right there within this play because given there's all this drama going around and all, all this um, – 
uh, a medical drama going around. This is a pretty wild group of people in, in terms of maybe a little bit different from doctors of today. There's like one thing that you don't even have time or space to deal with in this play, is, which is that one of the minor car- players in this whole drama is murdered. And I think Morton and Jackson, your, two of your protagonists, were opposing witnesses in the ultimate case. Yes. One of the men who was part of the salon of doctors in, in Boston that was run by John Warren uh, was a doctor named Dr. Parkman. And the Parkman case is very, is very famous, uh, uh, probably more among doctors than among the general population. But Dr. Parkman uh, owned a great deal of real estate in Boston, and uh, which in itself was uh, disconcerting since it was not ethical for doctors to be rich. Mm-hmm. And so, but Parkman owned a lot of real estate, so he was also given to loaning out money to uh, to other doctors who uh, needed it. But he, at the same time, was charging quite high interest rates. And one of the men he loaned the money to was another surgeon named John Webster. And John Webster finally had enough of being under Parkman's thumb and uh, cut him up and stuffed him down the chimney. And they were able to figure out it was John Webster because they realized that he had been cut up by a surgeon. Because the way he'd been cut up was by a surgeon. <laughs> I, I think it's Ether Dome too. You know, coming to a theater near you. Um, all right, I dare not ask another question. Uh, let me just quickly say that um, there are a lot of pretty vivid medical scenes uh, in this play, and uh, that Betsy Kaplan would be very proud of me. Because uh, I'm sort of famously squeamish. Like, Betsy Kaplan's always producing these shows about, uh, I don't know, these medical things. And I have to put my head between my knees about halfway through them. But I only held my program up in front of my face, I think, twice. Um, but it's it, it's uh, it's really a really interesting glimpse into uh, the history of medicine. So thank you very much. First of all, Dr. Uh, Gary Flores, uh, how's your pain level right now on a scale of 1 to 10? <laughs> I'm sitting down right now, so it's, it's, it's only about a one or two. It's okay right now. All right. Well, it was very heroic of you anyway. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. And David Crombie, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us. We should say there's a Horace Wells Society, but you're not a member of the Horace Wells Society. Not yet. We have to do something about that. Is it because you have to be a dentist and you're not a dentist? Well, I know it's mostly dentists, so I'm yeah. not sure what other qualifications might apply. If I could get you into the Horace Wells Society, would you want to be a member I'd, of the I Society? would join. I hear I, the parties are great, I if would, you know what I mean. I would join. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, and Liz Egloff, uh, so great to have you here. Uh, back in town, back in your hometown. The play's uh, really interesting. Uh, we're going to be back tomorrow with the nose. I'm not quite sure what the topics are yet, but that's par for the course. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan, Guyon Wolf, everybody who helped out. Out, uh, with this show today. Dr. Wolf, there's an invisible man here for you in the waiting room. Tell him I can't see him right now. <laughs> Nurse, we've got to stop using this gas.